Good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter number 3. Exodus chapter number 3. It's good to see you this morning, uh, 4th of July. This is, um, wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? I'm used to 4th of July weekend just being blazing hot, and it was not that way at all. It was, it was nice, so uh, we're thankful for that. We're going to continue our second sermon on the book of Exodus Years ago, there was, a, there was a movie about an agency that uh, monitored aliens that came to Earth, and that agency protected the general public from knowledge of their existence, and at the same time, made sure that those aliens behaved. And um, at the end of the movie, there was, a, there was a scene where one of the agents was looking in a locker in a train station, and there's all these aliens there. And as he closed the locker door, he looked at the other agent and said, isn't it sad that those people don't know that there's anything bigger out there than that? And the other agent said, you have much to learn, and opened the door, and they realized that they were in a locker as well. <laughs> and um, that's, that, I'm telling you this because uh, they didn't know what they didn't know until someone bigger revealed the truth. Uh, and unless somebody bigger revealed the truth, they would have never known. And the same thing is true when it comes to God. If God had never chosen to reveal more about himself, then we would never know more about God than what we see in nature. We call that natural revelation. Aren't you thankful that God chose to reveal himself, not only to Moses, but to us? I was thinking about this this week, that you read the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, you learn so much about God. In the beginning, God. You learn about the fact that he's a creator. You learn about the fact that it is God who determines what is good and what is not. That's just in the creation account. And you can continue so many different things as you go through the book of of Genesis, and that is only the tip of the iceberg. And that's all the patriarchs know. And then you get to a passage like this, and all of a sudden you realize it's almost like opening the locker door. There's so much more about God, and the rest of Scripture is unpacking what God wants us to know about him and it's only the tip of the iceberg and I've spent my whole ministry studying the word and I feel like I don't even know it at all compared to what there is to know about God's word. God is incredible, isn't he? We cannot know God unless God chooses to reveal himself to us and we only know what he decides to reveal. I believe that because, now this is Jaredology, make sure you get this. This is not in Scripture anywhere. I believe that because God is infinite, we will spend all of eternity learning more and more and more and more about God. Isn't that exciting? We, We come now to a part of Exodus where God begins to reveal himself to his people in ways that they never knew him before. And the book of Exodus is all about God revealing his name to his people. Let's stand together as we read God's word, beginning in Exodus chapter number 3 and verse number 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush (coughs) And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And notice Moses' reaction. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Lord, I pray that you will today nail down in our hearts how holy and awesome and powerful and majestic you are, but at the same time, impress upon our hearts how unholy and unworthy and un, um, um, everything that you are, basically, Lord, is the, the best way I can describe it. And then I pray that you will show us, Lord, how merciful and kind and gracious you are, that you choose not only to reveal who you are in the way that you do to us, but you also save us. And we praise you and honor you and glorify you in all this, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much. <clears throat> we've, we've entitled this series, um, Save for God's Glory, because of all the books in the Pentateuch, Exodus is the biggest revealer of who God is of, of all the books in the Pentateuch. And Moses is about to experience his glory in new ways. Think, think with me if you're Moses. Think about the beginning of, of what we just read. The day had probably begun just like any other day. Moses, for 40 years now, he's been out in the wilderness. Probably for almost 40 years, he's been tending sheep. He's simply minding his own business. But a person never knows when his life is going to be changed forever by an encounter with a living God, right? I bet if I were to talk to some of you, some of you would say the day, the time that I got saved, I was not expecting when I woke up that morning my day to go the way it did. I don't know if anybody has that kind of a testimony, but it wouldn't surprise me. And God, um, Moses had an encounter with the living God, and it wasn't a chance encounter. It was by God's providence that led Moses to the far side of the desert. And so Moses went out to investigate, and remember what we saw, or what he saw was a burning bush, but the bush was not burning up. And this is a supernatural sign, wouldn't you say? It was a supernatural sign. We call this kind of an encounter a Christophany, and a Christophany is simply a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Remember the word incarnate means in the flesh. It's an appearance of Christ before he came down to earth in, human, in, in a human body. He was meeting Christ. And one of the main ways that Israel would know Christ is through fire. Have you ever thought about this? He, there's a pillar of fire, a small pillar of fire. It's just a burning bush. But when all Israel meets God, remember what took Actually, let me back up. When all Israel met Christ, Christ was a gigantic pillar of fire leading them through the wilderness. That's what they knew about Christ. And that's something that we, we need to remember. We, you will hear people say, well, 
I like the Christ of the Gospels, and I'm going to follow the Christ of the Gospels. Well, that's great, and that's awesome. But that Christ of the Gospels made it very clear that he is a holy God. And you see it clearly with the the whole pillar of fire through the whole um, wilderness wanderings of Israel, right? And so, so here's this pillar of fire. Now, why fire? Why did Christ appear as a pillar of fire? Well, the burning bush revealed the very being of God. If you remember later on, Moses would look at the children of Israel and say, our God is a consuming fire. Remember that? Our God is a consuming fire. This miraculous sign pointed to the fact that God is powerful and he's all-powerful and he controls the creation. Aren't you glad he controls the creation? I'm glad he controls the creation, although I sometimes wonder why I swallow the bugs that I do when I'm outside or whatever else it is. I'm not sure what that part of the control has anything to do with my life, but somehow it does. And God controls all of creation. But it also shows not only that, it shows that he is eternal and self-sufficient. The miraculous sign pointed to uh, God's eternity and self-sufficiency. Like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. Never. His tank never runs low. It's, it's funny. Um, I, I had not thought of this until just last night. My son Jeffrey's here, uh, home, home from, um, from Virginia Beach area, and uh, he had a, a friend that he was witnessing to at Walmart, and the guy never prayed, probably hardly believed in God, and he was he, was, uh, he told Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I want you to know something. I was praying for you the other day, and I was praying for myself as well. And he, he said, God, why don't you just take a little bit of me time? And, um, and Jeffrey looked at him and said, it, it, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't need time to himself, right? And so people don't understand God's tank never runs low. He never runs out of fuel. He is the infinite God, self-sufficient He keeps burning bright. His beauty never fades because God never gets his energy from anyone or anything outside of himself. Isn't that wonderful? He is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his eternal being. God's resources can never, ever, ever be exhausted. Not only that, but God's holy. God told Moses to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. At the burning bush, God revealed his holiness in a way that had never been revealed before. Never had it ever been revealed like that before. What does the word holy mean? We have a hard time with that word, don't we? I I would imagine if I were to ask everybody here, if I could take you one by one so you could hear nobody else's answer, and ask you, what does it mean to be holy? Most people would probably say something like separateness. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's separate? Holiness means separation. Something holy is set apart. And in the case of God's holiness, it means that he's set apart from everything else that he's made. And it's not simply because we think in terms of righteousness, although righteousness is part of holiness, it's his, it's his otherness. It's his distinction between creator and creature. It's, it's the infinite distance between God's deity 
and our humanity. The distance is infinite. We can't even fathom the difference between God and us. And as a result of this part of the encounter, as soon as he realized that he was in the presence of God, he also realized that he was an unholy man. Just like Isaiah, just like the encounters that some of the um, people have with Jesus when he, in, in the Gospels. And so what did Moses do? He hid his face. Now what's interesting about that is that the Bible says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. That's Habakkuk 1.13, right? But the reverse is also true. God is too pure for our eyes to look upon him. Did you know that? Too pure for us to look on. Now that's a problem. Wouldn't you say? That is a big problem. And here's why. Here's why this is a problem. Human beings were made to gaze on the glory of God. When Adam walked with God in the garden, who was he walking with? He was walking with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full manifestation of the Father. And Moses, or Moses, Adam was able to gaze upon God in all his glory. He was able to walk with God and talk with God. But we have fallen into sin. We are in an unholy condition. And in our unholy condition, it is no, don't miss this, in our unholiness, it is no longer safe for us to come into the presence of a holy God. He is not safe to unholy people. Well, this raises a disturbing question, wouldn't you say? And that disturbing question is, how will we ever survive a direct encounter with God? The Bible teaches that at the end of history, every human being who has ever lived will stand before God's throne for judgment. And when that day comes, unless we are holy, we will be destroyed. Serious business we're talking about here, isn't it? So the question is, how do we safely approach God? The only way for us to come in the presence of a holy God is to be holy ourselves. The unholy must become holy. And that is why God sent his Son our, our, to be our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our holiness. We can never keep God's law. But Jesus kept it for us with perfect holiness. Then he died on the cross to take away all of our unholiness and gives us, give us robes of righteousness so that now when we trust in him, God accepts us as holy in his sight, as holy as Jesus himself is. Isn't that astounding? Colossians chapter 1 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now what? He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you how? Holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Now I want you to think about your life this week. How holy were you this week? Anybody cut you off in traffic? You have any unholy thoughts? Your baseball team lose? Moms, did your kids make you unholy this week? It's always their fault, right? Think about your life for just a minute. Your boss, 
I'd be a great Christian if it weren't for my boss. Think about your week. You are unholy in and above yourselves. But when you stand before Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, that word in Christ means that when you stand before him, all that holy unholiness has been removed, and you're standing there before him in the robes of righteousness of none other than Jesus Christ, and you are just as accepted. God is just as joyful in you. God is just celebrating your presence just as much as he would Jesus Christ. It gives me cold chills to think about. And if you're in Christ, I believe it does you. But this fire, this burning fire, this pillar of fire, that's what this pillar of fire that Moses saw did for you and he did for me on the cross. God, it also shows uh, that, that God, not only is he holy and everything, but we see also that God is a God of salvation, we would not expect such a great and glorious God, full of splendor, to care for the creature. I mean, he's got this whole universe to run. He's got myriads of angels praising him around him. <coughs> and yet the, the holy God of the burning bush, <coughs> I am so, so sorry, I've got from last week, I got leftovers from last week, put it that way. The holy God of the burning bush has an unbreakable love for his unholy people. And the way that he revealed himself to Moses showed this. He revealed himself to Moses in a personal, saving relationship. And he revealed himself not only to Moses, but to the, the nation of Israel with this kind of relationship in order that they might be saved. Not only this, but the God who is up in heaven in all his splendor and all his glory, Jesus Christ, sitting on that throne right now, also identified with the patriarchs. And he identified with Moses and the children of Israel, and he is identifying with his people even today. Now, there might be some of you sitting there right now who are thinking to yourselves, you know what? So-and-so is in my church. <laughs> That's kind of embarrassing. I know some of you have had that thought, because we all have that thought every now and then, right? And Jesus Christ is not embarrassed to call me or to call you a brother or sister. He's identifying with his people. What an amazing God that we serve. God's relationship with his people is a saving relationship. The God who sees and hears and knows his people is also the God who saves. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 8. Now I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And so God was <clears throat> reaching down to bring his people up out of Egypt. And here we see the God who is an awesome in glory and fearsome in holiness. He stoops to save. And so there was something that he was delivering them from. That's what saving is, isn't it? You're delivered from something. He was saving them from their slavery in Egypt and delivering them from the house of bondage. But there was something that he was saving them to. He was saving them to the promised land. The rest of verse number 8 says, A land 
flowing with milk and honey, and then it mentions where that land is. His plan was to bring them out of the land of slavery and captivity and into a land gushing with milk and honey. Now, please don't miss this. Don't miss this at all. The way God rescued Israel from Egypt is the way God always rescues his people. The Exodus is not simply past history. The Exodus is present reality for all of us. The God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush is the same God we serve today. And whenever and wherever we worship him, we are standing on holy ground, praising God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of of Jacob. And um, we we are crying out to him for salvation, and he saved us, just like he did the descendants of, of Israel. The exodus from Egypt reveals the pattern to salvation in Christ. And so whatever God did for Moses has direct relevance for the Christian. You must know this. Read chapter 3 and 4. If you didn't read it this week, first of all, shame on you. <clears throat> but read it because what God did for Moses and for Israel in the book of Exodus has direct relevance for the Christian today. Israel's bondage is a picture of our bondage to sin. And until we come to faith in God, we are living in the Egypt of our sin. We are enslaved to the passions and the lusts and the desires of sin in this present evil world. And just as the children of Israel were under Pharaoh's whip, we were under devil's spell and therefore we are in much a greater need of salvation as were the children of israel and if we are to be rescued if we are to be rescued god will have to stoop down to save us we're also saved to something aren't we heaven is our promised land the place of god's abundant and eternal blessing What a marvelous future this is. You know, this is 4th of July weekend. If you saw my email on on Friday, I love this nation. I love this country. We've got all kinds of great songs about our country. But you know what? I am so glad that America is not the promised land. I'm so glad that heaven is our promised land. But with this saving comes also a commission look at uh, verse number 10 this is this is where this conversation takes a disturbing terms for Moses come I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people that is the people of is the children of Israel out of Egypt I can just imagine now Moses probably started twitching just a little bit God don't you remember what happened last time? I mean, 40 years later, he probably still had PTSD from that encounter with the Egyptian and the Israelites, right? And he, he, he was probably, now wait, wait, can you repeat that, Lord? Because I don't think I heard you right. You said, I'm supposed to go, don't you remember, Lord, what happened? I ran for my life. I'm, I'm simply a shepherd. I'm happy being a shepherd. Those Egyptians are scary people. I can just imagine all of that going through through uh, Moses' mind, and here we encounter something, and this is so important, please don't miss this. We encounter a paradox here of God's sovereign grace. 
That is this. God uses sinful human beings to carry out a saving purpose. He uses human beings, sinful human beings to carry out his purpose. And dads, you don't even trust your 16-year-old with your car half the time, do you? And yet God entrusts us with the message of salvation. The, the attempt, Moses tried to save the Israelites once before, and the attempt was just simply a complete disaster. So bad, he, he botched it so bad he had to leave the country. But God used the events of Moses' life to prepare him for ministry. And now, 40 years later, the preparation was over and God was once again commissioning Moses to lead his people out of slavery. In the end, of course, and we all know this, God was the one who delivered his people. But God raised up his servant Moses to be the human agent of that deliverance. And so that reminds us of another thing, and that is this. Every believer has a job to do. Every believer and by the way, the job doesn't stop at 65. It doesn't even stop at 70 or 75. So you 80-year-olds, you need to get with the program. Right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, but it doesn't stop. The commissioning of the prophet. Now, how old, by the way, 80, you know why I said 80, right? How old was Moses? 80. Richard, get busy. <laughs> oh, I can't pick on him. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. So. <clears throat> but the commission of, the, of Moses was a reminder that every believer has a job to do. We have already seen that whenever God saves someone, he calls that person personally and individually to believe in him. And now we discover not only that, but God's, um, we discover that God's call to Moses is not only to salvation, but also to vocation, a specific task that God has called him to accomplish for his glory. And the same is true of every Christian. God, The God who saves is the God who sins. And so every follower of Christ receives two callings. The first one is to salvation. The second one is to service. Every one of us is called to serve the God of the burning bush. What a privilege that is. We serve the God of the burning bush. Whether we are preachers or postmen, whether we're bridge builders or homemakers, God has work for us to do. And that sudden news uh, that he was to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, Moses began to offer a series of excuses. See if you see yourself in any of these. All right? Lots of excuses. Beginning in verse number 11. Let's look at verse number 11. His first one is, who am I? <clears throat> who am I? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, think about this one for just a minute. I was trying to think of an analogy. I couldn't think of one. Here's Moses. He, he grew up in, the, in Pharaoh's household 40 years. He knew all the protocols. He knew all the language. Remember, we, we talked about that last week. But he spent the last 40 years being a shepherd. And Egyptians hate shepherds at this time. And now all of a sudden, God calls him back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh or uh, back to Pharaoh. And Moses is probably thinking to himself, man, I'm a, a bit rusty on this. You know, maybe, maybe you were some sort of an athlete at one point. You notice I said the word were back in high school. 
and your kids are teenagers now. Come on, Dad, let's play a little basketball. And you're telling them back in the day how good you were, right? And you go, I remember when I was somewhere around 40, uh, I used to be able to dunk the basketball when I was young. And when I was 40, I, I, I jumped to see how high I could uh, get. You know, I was thinking my wrist would still go over the, uh, and I barely got the backboard. I thought, oh, how far you have fallen, Jared. So, um, but Moses, Moses is probably thinking this way too. Who am I? Wait, God, I've been in the, I've been in the desert. I'm, I'm a shepherd now. Things, the political situation in Egypt has changed. There's a new guy there. But God had a job for him to do. And so God graciously answered this question. Look at verse number 12 by saying this, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses' assertion, don't miss this, Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but it's entirely beside the point. Entirely beside the point. Because he is the one who's not doing the saving. God is. And God's reply shows that whatever doubts Moses may have had about his own abilities, they were completely irrelevant. God promised to be with him. And whatever doubts you have about your own abilities, they are absolutely correct and they are absolutely irrelevant. Because it is God working through you. We, we spent um, over a year in the book of 1 Corinthians learning that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, right? It's, it's God shows His glory through weak vessels. His promise to be with Moses is, is the same promise that Christ gave the disciples in the church in the Great Commission. Remember what Christ said? Behold, I am with you always. None of us are up to the task that God has commissioned us to do. And so God said that the sign of His presence uh, will be that they will come back to this mountain to worship God. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if I were Moses, I'd think, that's not such a good deal. You tell me to go over there, i got to do everything, then you're going to show me that it was your will? That, you know, what's up with that, Lord? But if you think about it, what He literally said to Moses, you will serve me on this mountain is a great privilege. And here's why. Because God's plan was not simply to bring his people out of Egypt, but to gather them together, gather them in one place, and worship God. That's the sign. And every place where God's people are gathered together to worship him is a sign of what Christ has done and a sign that all the promises of God are true. Isn't it wonderful? <clears throat> well, the central message of the book of Exodus is that we are saved to glorify God. But Moses doesn't stop with, who am I? He, he switches the question around now and he says, who are you? Verse number 13. Then Moses said to God, if I, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, 
Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob have sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am that I am. Can everybody explain that word? Can you? Lord revealed his name here, and the word is Yahweh. Yahweh. He revealed it so that Moses, Israel, and we may know him in a personal way. But, but what does the word Yahweh mean? I am who I am. Or I am is literally Yahweh, right? Well, first of all, it means that God's mysterious because by giving us his name, God lets us know who he is. But God's name is so hard to comprehend that it forces us to admit that there are some things about God that we will never understand. This being one of them. Even this very name, we cannot understand. Secondly, God's name means that he is eternal and unchangeable. We, the, the theological term is immutable. Immutability in his divine being. His name occurs in the present tense of the Hebrew verb to be. The present tense of to be. God doesn't say, I was who I was. And he doesn't say, I will be who I will be. He says, I am who I am. And this is because God has no past and no future. God is eternally in the present. Is your mind blown yet? When we get to heaven... We will eternally be in the present. Eternally. Third, God's name is a third meaning. It means that God is self-existent. The word, uh, the verb there, to be, is flexible enough that we could translate this name, he who causes it to be. He who causes it to be. Everything else owes its life and being to God. But God is independent. He's not dependent on anyone or anything because his existence comes from himself. Eternal generation. I'm going to throw another theological term at you. Eternal generation. Another way to say this is that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't have any unmet needs or unsatisfied desires. He doesn't need any help from anyone. But I want you to think about something. And this, this, this week, just thinking about this alone blew my mind. This is only the beginning of revealing who God is. Only the beginning of the revelation of his name. Do you know there was somebody else who asked the same question? Just a few chapters later. His name is Pharaoh. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. He says, who is the Lord? So guess what? Pharaoh asked the question. God introduced himself to Pharaoh, didn't he? And he introduced himself in the form of plagues. Believe me, nobody wants an introduction like that one. Do you? We cannot overestimate the importance of I am Yahweh in Exodus. Knowing that the Lord is the theme of the plagues. We're, we're headed into chapters 5 to 14 next week. And 
the, the, the plagues, chapters 5 to 14, shows Egypt and Israel both who Yahweh is and that he is, has unrivaled superiority over creation. And you know what we're going to find out next week? We're going to find out that the word used for all those plagues is, there's two, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Now, does that jar anything in your memory? Where else have we heard the word signs in Scripture? Well, fast forward 1,500 years, and now the pillar of fire has taken on human flesh. And one of his disciples named John pointed out seven times where he used the words, Ego I me, I am. And every Jewish scholar of the day knew that when Jesus said, I am, he was referring all the way back to Exodus. And he was saying, I am none other than that pillar of fire. Now, I am sure Jesus said, I am more than seven times. But that word seven, that number seven is talking about completion, isn't it? Not only that. But guess what else John decided to do? He decided to show seven signs. Seven signs. He called the miracles signs. The number seven, again, just showing that God, Jesus, is completely God. That's all that was doing. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Exodus, God showed signs to Pharaoh, and for Pharaoh, it was judgment and for Israel, it was salvation. Go to the book of John. Jesus shows signs that he is I am. And for the unbelieving Israel, which was most of Israel, that was what? Judgment. But for the remnant that believed, it was salvation. God hadn't changed, has he? Still the same today. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the God of Moses? The Lord of the burning bush? The question's important because literally it's a, it's a matter of life and death. Jesus said this. Listen to Jesus' words in John 8, 24. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is Lord, you will die in your sins. Jesus Christ is the one who saves, and anybody who doesn't believe in him has no hope of salvation. Jesus went on to say four verses later in John 8, 28, he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. Jesus was speaking about his crucifixion, claiming that his death on the cross for sinners would prove that he is a true God of our salvation, and a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the I am. Praise be to God. <clears throat> well, after telling Moses his, um, that he was going to commission him, he, he gave him his plan. I don't have time to run through the plan. You can read those verses. Uh, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do signs and wonders. Uh, he, what, what, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. And he ends it with, Hey, we're going to plunder the Egyptians. You're going to plunder the Egyptians. I took this out of my sermon because of time, but i got to stick this back in here. If you read the verses, the very end of, of chapter number 3, it says the women, the women will plunder. 
You know what this is showing? In, in ancient warfare, it was the strongest of warriors that plundered the enemy. God is so totally going to defeat Egypt that the women will plunder. And by the way, that's not, uh, that's not a slap at, at women. It's just showing that I am so totally going to decimate Egypt that we don't have to protect the women the, and we don't have to use warriors for the plundering. We can use anybody, children. He could have stuck children in there too. Well, let's go to chapter 4, verse number 1. We find a third question that Moses says. He says, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? Well, God graciously gives him three signs to perform. The, the staff, he said, throw your staff down, turn it into a snake. Now, pick the thing up by its tail. Then he says, stick your hand in your robe, comes out with leprosy. Stick your hand back in, it comes out clear, remember? And then the final sign was take some water and pour it out and it turned to blood. And he said, you'll do that in, in Egypt with the Nile River water. God is, is the God of wonders. But that still wasn't enough for Moses, was it? And so he goes on to another. He's tired of the questions and so now he just objects. Look at verse number 10 of chapter 4. He says, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, there's lot, been a lot of ink spilled on this issue, whether or not Moses was eloquent or not. Stephen, in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, says that he was eloquent. Moses is saying he's not. We don't know if he was or not, but the fact of the matter is, he said, I can't speak. He may have literally had a speech problem, or he may have been making an excuse, but once again, his objection was totally irrelevant. Because look at the very next verse. Verse number 11. The Lord said to him, who made your mouth? Right? And then he goes on, and this is astounding. I, don't even, I wish I had time to unpack this. Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I want you to think about something. These rhetorical questions are a reminder that God made us exactly the way he wants us to be made. It pleases God to make you the way you are. Who, he who gave us our eyes, ears, and mouth, this Lord, um, gave us the abilities that we need to please him in the job that he gave us to do. But not only that, look at these words. Look at verse number 12 again. Not only that, he claims right here, I even give the disabilities. I give the disabilities to glorify myself. Remember when uh, there was a blind man in Jerusalem and the disciples looked at the Lord and said, Who, uh, why is this man blind? Was it his sin or was it his mom and dad's sin? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said it's not uh, sin. He was made blind for my glory. And you may, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. If that is the case, then our abilities, inabilities, and even disabilities are ordained by God. Dear believer, I want to remind you, God has equipped you with every talent you need to do his will because he has made you for his glory. People often wish they had somebody else's abilities instead of their own. The other day, a couple weeks ago, I was joking around the sound guys, 
they're, uh, I didn't know that they could do this, but uh, they were out there messing around, and, and one of the singers, I won't mention their name, they were uh, tweaking their vocal response on, what was that called? Parametric, that's what it is, parametric EQ, and uh, getting rid of it. And then he brought up mine, and mine was a mess. It had three big dips in it. And I looked at him and said, hey, can you, can you make program that thing so I sound like Alistair Begg? You know what his response was? This, this is not a miracle machine. <clears throat> Funny thing, I thought it was hilarious. He emailed me a while later and apologized for it. I said I thought it was hilarious. But, uh, but listen, people often wish that they had somebody else's ability to their own. If it is true that God has made us exactly the way he wanted, then we cannot complain about our lack of ability without grumbling against the Lord. When Moses said, I don't know how to speak, and God responded, who gave man his mouth? It's God's way of showing Moses that he was mouthing off. Every time we complain about our personal limitation, what we're actually doing is insulting (coughs) insulting the God who made us, right? Because he made us exactly for his glory. The thing to do instead is to serve God as well as we can. Even if our gifts are limited, and by the way, everybody's gifts are limited in one respect or another, they should be used for God's glory. No excuses. No excuses. What talent, dear believer, has God given you? What ability or abilities has God given you? Perhaps he's given you a penetrating intellect. Or maybe he's given you a beautiful voice. Or a strong body to do work. You can outwork everybody. Perhaps you have a practical gift. Maybe you can care for the sick. Maybe you can nurture small children. Or maybe... You have the gift to make money. Whatever the ability you have been given, use it for God's glory. Teenagers, I see teenagers out here. Use your gifts for God's glory. Teens, let me talk to you for just one minute. The world, by example and by outright teaching, entices you teenagers to take your gifts and abilities that God has given you for His glory and use it on yourself and for your own glory. Don't be a glory stealer, teenagers. Don't do it. Give God the glory that he deserves. Do you notice one other thing? God didn't evaluate Moses' speaking ability. He didn't say, yeah, you're right, Moses. You're pretty awful. He didn't do that at all. He didn't try to tell him that he was more eloquent than he thought he was. Nor did he admit that Moses was really slow of speech or tongue. Instead, he told him the only thing that mattered. You knew what that was? The only thing that mattered is that God was going to be with him. Like Moses, we're prone to place far too much reliance on natural ability and not nearly enough on supernatural assistance. I am, I'm telling you, I'm faced with this every Sunday. I know you're, you're probably sick of me t- saying this. Every Sunday, I am faced with the fact that I have limited abilities, and it's only with God's supernatural assistance, God taking his word and impressing on somebody's heart that anything gets done in this church. 
It's not Jared Edgecombe. I mean, if he used if he if he used a donkey to get a message, I'm not that important. And neither are you. Your importance lies in the fact that you were made in God's image and you were made to give God glory. How refreshing is that to know? It's wonderful. It's liberating, I think. And then we see one, one other thing. The, prom, the I am promises to be near. He's the God who is near. Look at verse number 12. Now therefore go, <coughs> and I will be with your mouth, and will teach you what you so, shall speak. That general promise included a very specific promise to be with Moses whenever he spoke. To be with, what does that mean? I will be with. That, that means he's the power behind him. God made the same promise to the great, at the Great Commission. Do you remember that? He will be with us whenever we speak for him because he promised to be with us always. Moses ran out of excuses, and so finally, verse number 13, he said, hey, just send someone else. Verse number 13, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. The Lord finally got angry. Moses, uh, Moses' questions and objections amounted to a refusal to obey and also a refusal to glorify God. Have you ever thought about that? If God's calling you to something and you refuse because you're focused on your inabilities, you are refusing in turn to give God glory. Think about what a church would be like if every single person sitting in the pew decided, God, you gave me this one ability. It's this big. Or God, it's this big. Or God, it's this big. You gave me this one ability. I'm going to use it as best I can for your glory. Think of what would happen in that church. Well, so what does he do? He sends Moses back to Egypt. Verse number 19 uh, says that he took his wife and his sons, and he also took the staff of God. And we find out more information in verse number 21. God gives him more. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do uh, before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will burn his heart so that he will not let people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Pharaoh's will, there's two things here. Number one, Pharaoh's will is also God's will. God not only knew that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, God actually ordained it. Don't ask me how that works. It's a divine mystery. I'm being dead serious here. Pharaoh's will was to have a hard heart, and God's will was to harden his heart all at the same time. It's a mystery. We'll, we'll look at that more next week. This is the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which is not a puzzle to be solved. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery to be adored. Isn't it? As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God. But even the choice we make is governed by God's sovereignty and eternal will. That's, that's not what Jared says. That's what the Bible says. Both of those are equally as true. He called Israel my firstborn. That's the second truth I want to see from there. My firstborn son. Israel was a son of God's choice. At the very deepest spiritual level, the Exodus is a story about sonship, about a father's love for his only son, Israel. And Israel's deliverance is a true history of a loving father who rescues his children so they can be together as a family. Later on, 
When God reminisced about the Exodus, he said the words that are on the screen, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you are in Christ, God called you out just like his son. The other thing I want you to see, i got to close. I'm way long. I'm sorry about this. Actually, I'm not that sorry. <clears throat> He's our brother. Have you ever thought about that? He's also our brother. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ becomes a true child of God. The work of Christ was to bring a slave of sin into the liberty of sonship. The Bible calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8, 29. Because every believer is a child of God, the Bible also says you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. To know Jesus as Savior is to know God as Father, and the Exodus teaches us what kind of father he is. He's not like human fathers with all their failings. Rather, he's a good father, always faithful to his children. In his tender compassion, he cares for them and rescues them from every danger, and he's also our brother. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. When Moses met his brother, and, and I gotta, this is my closing, okay? When, let's go all the way to the end of chapter 4. When Moses met his brother and the elders of Israel, just as God had promised, the elders saw the signs <coughs> and believed, and the commissioning account ends this way. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And you know what? If you are in Christ, God saw your affliction. You were afflicted by sin. You were a slave to sin. You were afflicted by evil. And God removed you from that affliction. And the only response that any redeemed person can have is to bow the head and worship the God who saves. That's the right response of all who the Lord has delivered. The God of Moses, the Savior of the world, is to be worshipped and adored. He rules every heart by sovereign will. He's the God who loves us in the way that a good father loves and an only son. He is the God who gives what his justice demands, a perfect sacrifice for sin. Have you ever thought about that? He's a wonder-working God. He's the God who keeps every last promise of his salvation he is also our God who has seen our misery and is concerned about our suffering. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the burning bush, <coughs> the great I am the God of the universe who stooped to call Moses to bring his children out of Israel. That same burning bush, that same pillar of fire came in human flesh and through suffering delivered all who are in Christ. I pray that if we don't do anything else today, that we will worship Christ for the awesomeness of our redemption. In Christ's name, amen.